Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like for you to take it and find the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Whether you have a printed copy, as I highly encourage you to bring to church, or you have an app on your device where you can pull up the Word of God, I would greatly appreciate you to do that for with me and for me this morning uh, as we come to the conclusion of what I believe has been a very fruitful, rich, at times difficult sermon series simply entitled, Do You Not Know? Do You Not Know? As I've told you over the last seven weeks, those are not my words. Uh, they are the words of the Apostle Paul, and he uses that phrase in a rhetorical way seven times in chapter 5, in chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're a guest of ours, I know Pastor Jeff welcomed you earlier. I also welcome you. So glad that you're here. I met some of you this morning. That's your first time here on our campus. Others, it's not your first time, but it's the first time I had the privilege of meeting you. The pattern of our preaching ministry is that we want to preach God's Word most faithfully, and we believe it is most faithfully explained and preached when we work through it systematically, just as the Lord has delivered it to us, uh, book by book, verse by verse. And so we chose the book of 1 Corinthians this year, and when we came to chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we opened up this discussion that I'll address in just a moment, we couldn't help but find a better title for the series than the one that Paul, I believe, would give us if he were here with us this morning. In chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul chooses to deal with a very difficult, uh, very dark, but a very important subject within the church. And of course, the subject is sexual sin and scandal within the church. Now, I told you week one, seven weeks ago, and by the way, if you are hearing this for the very first time, whether you're joining us online or you're here with us live, all these sermons are always available. I was talking with our tech team this morning. They're available everywhere. Vimeo, YouTube, Facebook, my podcast, the church's podcast, your mama's podcast. No, not your mama's podcast, but we're going to do it if we can one day. Let her text me and we'll figure it out. We want you to have access to God's Word, and I highly encourage you to do that. But I told you when we began this series that this is not a sermon series specifically about sexual sin in the world. It's not a sermon series about sexual sin outside the church. It's not even a sermon series about God's will for sex. It's a sermon series about the church dealing not only with our sexuality, but also when sexual sin occurs in our life. The church at Corinth had a problem. Their problem really was rooted not in sexuality. The culture around them was completely uh, caught up into that. It was rooted in spiritual pride. And the pride and the arrogance that Paul deals with in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 create the perfect environment for the people to begin to struggle morally and to struggle with encountering sin and not dealing with it redemptively. The, the goal of God's Word, of course, is that we walk in righteousness. But I'm so thankful that God not only created us, He knows us because He created us. So He knows we're going to struggle. We're going to fail. There is a remedy for that. It's called repentance. And repentance is a beautiful gift from God because God is not declaring that we somehow have to remain in debt to Him over our sin. We can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. We can be 
changed. And so a righteous church is not a church that sticks its nose in the air and pretends that it never struggles. A righteous Christian is not a man or a woman that says they're somehow immune from struggling with any type of sin, specifically in this case, sexual sin. No, no, no. Righteous men and women, righteous churches are people who deal with sin when it occurs rightly. I couldn't help but think about this. Had some drive time this week. Went home to see some family just for a quick trip the last two days. Got in late last night thinking about you as I drove. And I also thought about how our children have started back to school and many of them have already failed that first test and you've had that discussion with them. We have that discussion often. If our children took more after their mother, she was the valedictorian of her class. Uh, Their father was not. I was a bit of a late bloomer. With every degree that I acquired, my GPA went up. But early on, there were serious discussions about my ability to even stay in school. My father interacted with me often about that. Whenever you teach how to use language well and how to communicate in the form of a paragraph or an essay, you often do the lesson plan, and all the teachers in the room know the lesson plan, where you give the kids an exercise where you say, I want you to pick a subject you'd like. All the little boys pick sports or something related to the outdoors, and the young ladies will pick things that they're passionate about. Many of our young ladies here are gifted athletes as well, but it could be something artistically or athletically or some passion or hobby, and they give you the assignment. They say, I want you to write a news article telling us about an event in your life. And You all know where I'm going with this. A good English teacher will say that a good essay, a good news article answers some questions. They're pretty simple questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Yesterday I was in a place with very little cell phone coverage. I had very little signal. These are the places I like to be. And I was on a really good bird hunt, so I didn't look at my phone all day. But last night as I gained access to cell coverage, I began to see what happened to our Aggies out at Texas A&M. And I began to see the celebration that was taking place up in Boone, North Carolina. And I praise God for that because all they used to reference was that Michigan win 33 years ago. And so now they have a new one that they can reference. But as I caught up on the box scores and I listened to the recap, a good article will recap the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how. And really, this is the goal of the preacher. Most of preaching is to open up and and to say, let me tell you about God, who he is. It's not a greater view of you. It's a greater view of him and then what he does and when he does it. Because who he is determines who you are. And what he does determines what you do. And when he moves, determines when you should move. Where is God going? His word tells us about his will. And so we often discuss the directional application of God's word. Where does he want me to go? And then there are times where God is mysterious. There are times where he asks us to take him by faith. We understand his ways are not our ways. We recognize he does not reveal to us every intricate detail. That is why we must give him our faith. But so much of his word does explain the why. He does tell us, this is why I want you to live this way. This is why I want you to speak this way. This is why I want you to believe this way. So the role of your pastor is to fill in the blanks for you and I under God's word. And yet also there are times when I think if we do the work of the who and the what and the when and the where and the why, 
We need to get to the how. Now, this is not a sermon on sermons, but one of the problems in the modern pulpits of our day is they rush to the how. It's all application-driven. It's not dripping with Scripture. It doesn't paint a grand picture of who God is. It doesn't set you within the redemptive plan of the glorification of his son who will return. It rather just goes right to whatever issue you have. Every sermon and every Sunday tends to be about you and your issues and your relationships and your breakthrough and your delivery. And this superficial spiritual advice gets melded together with the greatest forms of modern-day pop psychology, and as long as it looks good on a meme or a tweet, it'll make some good sermon series. And so we have churches that are a mile wide in their digital influence, but an inch deep in their theological depth. I don't want that to be you. I want you to be informed. I want you to be deep-rooted in the person and the character of God. And here's the reason why. I could never, even if I were allowed to build a creative content team. Let me tell you, I got one. It's called a Bible. But if I were to create a creative content team and we were to sit around and dream up sermon series to fill the room up, we could never exhaust all of the intricate situations that each of you are facing. That's rather arrogant to think that an individual or a group of individuals, no matter as gifted as they are, could do that. But if we give you a great view of a God, if we make much of a Savior, if we tell you about the gift of the Holy Spirit living in you and we help you see His plan, then you can take the grand truths of who He is and you can then apply them to the specific details of your life. I think tomorrow night, maybe Tuesday, I don't know, I need to look at my calendar. I'll be in Branson, Missouri, preaching to pastors from all over the nation. And that's what I'm going to tell them. Stop trying to fix your people and tell them about a Savior and preach his word. And what God will do is far better than what you can do because he will work in ways that you cannot. Never been to Branson. I always thought the first time I'd go would be on a tour bus when I'm 70, but I'm going this week. Some of you got your feelings hurt just then. Well, we were going to go. So when you do a sermon series on the sexual ethic that God demands for his church, you better tie it to Christ. You better help people understand you're not asking them just to behave. You better tell people it's more than just you being moral. But if you do all that, and I believe we have over the last six weeks, I then reserve the right to roll up my sleeves and try to tell you how to do it. And so I, I admit that this sermon is the explanation of three verses, but it's the application from a pastor's heart to a people whom I love, and I dearly want you to flourish in the way you handle yourselves relationally, intimately, and yes, sexually. And I couldn't pick a better passage than the summation of chapter 6. Paul is putting a book in on this subject, and he does so with beautiful conciseness. Look what happens beginning in chapter 6, in the last few verses. I'll start reading in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexually immoral person, the sexually immoral person, sins against his own body. Or do you not know, by the way, that's the last time we see the do you not know, that's number seven, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. It's a rhetorical question. Your editors have supplied a question mark in the English translation. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's nothing simpler than teaching a child one, two, three, four. Often our musicians, when they're warming up, they will use the reminder of the rhythm of the song. And the most basic way in which rhythm is established is one, two, three, four. Some of you don't have it, but that's the way the rhythm works. One, two, three, four. We all know that lists can be very helpful, but once they get past four, we struggle to remember them. And we've all taught our children to count. One, two, three, four. And when they throw that thumb out there and get to five, we're so proud of them. When they turn five, we put a post on. You're a whole hand. Some people make two whole hands. And some of you ain't got enough hands for all the hands you've made in your life. One, two, three, four. To be basic, to be applicable, and to be memorable, let's use that if we could. And let me tell you how to live out this passage and this series. First, one. There is one morality that matters. There are lots of morality. There are lots of different versions of what morality is. Look at our world. It is in a constant pursuit to define and then redefine morality. You can tell just by reading the headlines how hard it is for a world that disconnects itself from a creator to even establish a morality. If chapter five and chapter six, and I encourage you to go back and read them again perhaps this week, does anything, it reminds us of something. God is the one who determines the morality that matters for our lives. It's not your truth or my truth, it is what God says. Now, why is that? Is he a killjoy? Is he a dictator? Is he someone that has created us as nothing more than minions? He cannot wait to punish us when we fail him. Even when we fail him in areas where we face incredible desire and temptation, we all know the power of sexual sin. No, it's really rooted in the truth about our sexuality. It's the same about our emotionality or our emotional lives. It's the same about our social lives. It's the same about our relational lives. It's the same about our spiritual lives. As the creator of us, he gets to make the rules. I'll summarize it this way. As the designer and giver of our sexuality. Sexuality and sex is not the enemy of God. It was his idea. God is the final authority over this powerful part of our lives. His word makes his will clear for his followers and the church regarding our sexual ethic. We're not in limbo here. His wisdom in this matter leads to our flourishing and his glory. And by the way, it's just a real simple illustration. If the world's wisdom in this matter, which is a constant pursuit of a new morality, a more overt, robust sexuality, if that really did work, 
then why has it never stopped? There seems to be always a groping for more experimentation, for more exploitation. If the truth was each individual defining his or her sexuality really led to human happiness, we should have been happy a couple of centuries ago. But it doesn't. And we know that it doesn't. And it's important to remember both parts of that. That his morality matters not only for his glory, but also it's where we flourish. I shared with you last week a simple illustration. Give me one social problem in any environment, urban or rural, black or white, rich or poor. Give me one social epidemic, one social tragedy that would not in some way be greatly reduced or permanently resolved. If one young woman and one young man saved themselves for marriage, married, had children, and stayed together, raised, fed, disciplined, loved, celebrated, and enjoyed those children. Every problem that is ripping the core of society is ripping at the core of society because the core of society has been ripped open. The family. Long before God created a government, a kingdom, or a church, he created a man and a woman. And the most intimate physical gift he gave them was the gift of expressing their love in the confines of sex and their sexuality for the glory of God, for their own pleasure, and for the procreation of children. And if you don't believe that, go down to the children's hall this morning. I walked down there this morning and one of the workers asked me to change my subject today and asked me to preach on abstinence. <laughs> I will not do it. I have no biblical grounds for it inside of the confines of covenant marriage. There's one morality that matters. But two, there's two movements that matter. And I chose the word movement for a reason because they are the bookends of this passage. The very first word in verse 18 is the verb flee, to run. But in the original language, it is not run once. It is the idea of an habitual movement away from sexual sin. In fact, that's what the term says in verse 16, or verse 18 rather. Flee from sexual immorality. Now that term sexual immorality comes from the Greek term pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. But it, it really is the word that Paul would go to to cover the whole thing. In other words, he's not saying flee from sex. He's saying flee from sexual immorality. And he uses the word pornea, which covers every deviation of God's will. And then he says, run from it and run from it continually. Now, that's a note to us of how humanity works. There's no moment in your life where you are completely delivered from the presence of the opportunity to sin sexually. Now, I recognize as people age and as our bodies change and as life change, that may become something that you remember in your past more so than today. I certainly know standing here with you as a 44-year-old man, my struggles with and my battle against sexual temptation and sexual sin is different than when I was an 18-year-old man. And I would imagine if you give me the privilege of standing here another 20 years, when I'm a 64-year-old man, there will be some changes. But the point is, is that we don't ever resign ourselves from being emotional. We don't resign ourselves from being spiritual. We certainly don't resign 
resign ourselves from being social, so we cannot ever resign ourselves from being and acknowledging that we are sexual. And so the movement of our life is to identify the goodness of God in sex, but also recognize the dangers of sexual immorality and flee from them. This should be a constant movement. I'm going to show you how to do that in just a few moments. But the poster boy is Joseph in the Old Testament. He was put over Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife was on the prowl. She wanted very much to be with this young man in an adulterous affair. The Bible tells us what Joseph did in the 39th chapter of the book of Genesis. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She was not talking about taking a nap. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Whenever I tell men about this story, I, 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 do, I always remind them, Joseph did not run because he believed she should not pursue him. He ran because he knew he would stay there and he would fall into sin if he stayed. He ran not in his righteousness, but in the acknowledgement of his unrighteousness, knowing what could take place, he knew to preserve his righteousness, he had to get out of that situation. Don't for one second believe the lie of the enemy that says you can warm up close to sin without falling into it. You have to flee. But I think it's fascinating that this same passage does not just tell us what to run from, it tells us what to run to. In fact, when we get into verse 20, look how it ends. Flee from sexual immorality, verse 18. Look at verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's the last word that Paul closes chapter 6 with. That's what he wants. There's a lot of things in chapter 5 and 6 he told the church to do. He told them to remove someone who won't repent of sin, especially sexual sin. He told them to guard themselves. He tells them in verse 18 to run from sexual immorality. But what is the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is to not spend our time running from what we can not defeat. The ultimate goal is that as we flee from that which dishonors the Lord, we run to a life that brings glory and honor to God. What's this look like in our lives? What does it mean for a man to glorify God in his body? It means that his body, which could be an instrument for sin or an instrument for righteousness, is consistently an instrument for righteousness. So one of the things I tell my boys is that God gave you your body to protect women, not to exploit them. You see, the war on gender wants to emasculate men. The problem with that is that the more we tear down gender, the more women get assaulted and attacked. If you tell men that they're in no way to ever position themselves in a point and a place of strength and masculine leadership, they stop doing it. But God did not give men their strength and their masculinity, their physical size, which is larger and stronger on average than women statistically. He did not give that to them to oppress or to hurt. He gave that to them to lift up and protect. And so we can't just tell young men, run from sexual immorality. We tell young men, you face it head on and you see the women in your life as sisters in the Lord to be honored and protected. 
And, and so I say to my boys all the time, listen, we want to be people of peace and grace. But if somebody touches your sister, you throat punch them and we'll deal with it. Now, don't quote me on that. Take that one online. I'm, I'm just saying, why are most churches empty of men? Because we're telling men not to be men. Men should not be adversarial. We should not be men looking for conflict. But one of the roles of men is to protect and love and cherish women. And by the way, ladies, this is the environment in which you flourish, in which your gifts are celebrated, not where you are oppressed. It is not an enemy or a patriarchal oppressive system. It is how God designed it. But the flip side is true as well. When a woman finds her beauty in the Lord, she longs to build confidence and love and affirmation in the men in her life, her father, her brothers, and certainly any men as a young woman she might entertain time with that could lead to a romantic relationship, but she does not go into that relationship in need of intimacy because she knows who she is in Christ. And therefore, while she has very much the beauty and the love and the feminine affection that he is wired to be drawn to, she understands that that is to be given in the context of a commitment. And when that commitment is made, marriage, she gives it and it is celebrated. And the two, the feminine and the masculine, work beautifully together. And if you don't believe that's God design, God's design, look at the rebellion against God's design. We see it a lot in the homosexual and the transsexual community. If it is God's design, then we even see it when people deviate from God's design because often inside of homosexual relationship, one will assume the feminine role, one will assume the masculine role, which proves that even in the midst of sin, there is this desire to walk in the way in which God has for all of us. It cannot be accomplished in that relationship, but it proves how the human heart is designed. And so we flee and we glorify. These are the movements, which leads to three motives that matter. This is what the passage mainly does, and this is how we'll explain it. Look what the Bible says in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Three motives. Let me give them to you very quickly. N number one, you flee from it because of the power of this sin. Now, a lot of people scratch their head and go, what does Paul mean that sexual sin is just different than any other sin? Because in the literal understanding, there are other sins we can do to our body. We can self-mutilate. I, I remember in seminary, in seminary, and, and, and this is a lack of exposure on my part. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm being critical of myself. I was studying with a young man who's training to be a youth minister. We had Hebrew together, and, and we were studying Hebrew together, and, uh, and he, he was pretty good at it, and I, I was not, and we worked together, and it helped us. And he said, hey, pray for me. I've got a young woman, in a, youth, a girl in the youth ministry where he was serving. She's a cutter. I, 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 I said, a cutter? He said, yeah, she's a, she's a cutter. Like, I don't know any of them. I know some Smiths. I know some. She goes, no. He goes, no, 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 no. She's cutting herself. At this point, I was in my early 20s. I, I had not heard of it. Now, I've been exposed to it many, many times, even with some young people in our church who struggled with it. 
Now we all know about it. We know the Bible clearly prohibits self-mutilation, but oftentimes there is an acting out. And what people say to me who have done it is they say, I was so numb and so hurt and so filled with depression and anxiety, I wanted to feel something even if it was pain. And so there are all kinds of ways we can sin that involve our body. Gluttony would be a sin that involves our body. Self-mutilation would be a sin that involves our body. But Paul says sexual sin is different. I do my best to try to explain these truths to you, but when I find somebody that's explained it better than I could, I love to get out of the way and to let them explain it. One scholar I think captures it best. This is what he says. His name is Brendan Byrne. The immoral person, this is the person who's in sexual immorality, perverts precisely the faculty within himself that is meant to be the instrument of the most intimate bodily communication between persons. There's nothing more intimate in communicating love than sex. He sins against his unique power of bodily communication, and in this sense, sin in a particular way way, against his own body. Goes on to say this way, I thought this was really powerful. All other sins are in this respect by comparison outside the body, with the body having in this verse the strong sexual overtones that appear to cling to it throughout the passage as a whole. No other sin engages one's power of bodily personal communication in in precisely such an intimate way. This is why you cannot separate the intimacy of physical sexual contact and emotional sharing of yourself. I can be in a thousand business transactions with a thousand human beings. I can shake hands and hug a thousand friends and loved ones in a thousand different relationships. I can have all kinds of different relationships varying in degrees of intimacy, and if one of them particularly falls apart, if I fail a person, if they fail me, while that might hurt me temporarily, it does not mark or scar my ability to have future friendships, future business transactions. But when I share myself fully and most intimately with a person, I not only share the physical contact, which is very intimate and very full, but the emotional connection. And and so what Paul is saying is, is that you don't get to say sex is a powerful gift from God without also acknowledging when you deviate from God's will, sexual sin is a powerful form of rebellion against God. I shared this a few weeks ago, but I'll share it again. It's worth noting. I can prove this by your own life. In your life and in my life, I'm sure we've done thousands of things we're not proud of, whether it be stealing a piece of chewing gum as a five-year-old or telling a lie about who broke a window. Perhaps you've deviated from God's will in some situation as an adult. But in my pastoral experience, the area where people seem to carry the most guilt and shame the longest almost always lives under the category of some form of sexual sin or immorality. I'm not celebrating that, nor do I believe you have to live in constant shame for your past mistakes. The cross of Christ is greater than your sin, all your sin, and any of your sin. I am saying that that guilt and that shame proves Paul's point. This motivates us to take this more seriously. But the second motive It's not just the power of the sin, it's the presence of the Spirit. Look what the Bible says in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, an immoral person sins against his own body. Now, then Paul is introduced to this idea of your body, and he's not just talking about your physical presence, though he is talking about your physical body. He's talking about your person, your autonomy as an individual made in the image of God. But then look what he says in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. Now, you and I understand the temple. If you've been to church any, you've heard of sermons on the Old Testament temple. But uh, with all due respect, you have no knowledge of the temple the way Paul would have. Paul being born a Jewish man, being a Pharisee, would have been keenly tied to the identity of the temple in Jerusalem. And when he met Christ and the Holy Spirit came to live in him, for the first time in his life, he recognized that the Holy Spirit now does not dwell permanently in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the temple in Jerusalem, which would later be destroyed. It lives in a sinful human being who's been totally forgiven of their sin. So Paul is saying, not only does this sin of sexual sin have great implications to powerful feelings of shame and guilt and sorrow, When you engage your body in it, you're taking with you into the moment the presence of the living God who does not vacate a Christian, ever, ever. No scripture teaches us that you can lose the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are people who claim to have the Holy Spirit and the pattern of their life proves he's not present. That happens a lot. But there is no scriptural or biblical reference. And in a few weeks, we're going to really dive into the person of the Holy Spirit. I can't wait to get into this discussion with you. But there is no biblical grounds that says the Holy Spirit comes on us and leaves us, comes on us and leaves us. No, he lives permanently in us, which should be a motive for us. It is not my eyes looking at that screen. It is not my eyes lusting after that woman. It is not my eyes flirting with that coworker, no matter how nice he is or how cute he is. It is not my hands touching that person inappropriately. It is not my feet walking into sin. It is the temple of the living God with the spirit of the living God in me, and I am taking him with me on the journey. That should motivate us. But the final one's the one that gets me. The power of sin, the presence of the spirit, but the payment of the Savior. Notice what Paul says here. He says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then he makes a statement. You are not your own. One of the things you hear now from a morally rebellious culture is personal bodily autonomy. We hear this a lot in the pro-abortion crowd. You're violating my personal autonomy. The biblical Christian, the biblical worldview, and the only worldview you can hold if you believe God's word truly is that we deeply respect the personal autonomy of any human being, including the life inside the womb of the mother. So, so, but oftentimes, whatever someone's agenda is, now they raise the flag up This is my life, it's my body, and it's my choice. I can do what I want. I'm not angry at the world for feeling that way. I have no rocks to throw. But if you follow Jesus, it's not your body, it's not your choice, it's not your personal autonomy. Because let me tell you why. When you step over from death to life, you get saved. 
you realize post-salvation that what you thought was freedom was slavery. You were slave to your sin, and your sin was going to drag you to hell when you died. And then when you get set free from that, my chains are gone, I've been set free, you realize I went from a slave on the auction block having been bought by Satan through my sin, chained to an eternal damnation in hell, to a man who's been bought by the king and invited to be his son or his daughter. So, so all of a sudden, what I think about my happiness has less value than what God says will make me happy. Some people say, well, that's an oppressive message. You're robbing people of their individuality. No, I'm actually telling you that's where joy starts. When you get freed up from the chains of your own sinful desires, you realize, wait a minute. Not only can I not get this right, I don't even have to figure it out. I don't belong to me. I belong to the king. And he did not throw the scraps of heaven to redeem me. He shed the blood of the prince. He gave his one and only son. This is why Paul says, you've been bought with a price. And this is slave language. He knew that a third of the world, when he wrote, were slaves in Rome. They would have understood this. They were former slaves in the church. They were current slaves in the church. And he said, spiritually, you were chained. And now you've been set free, but you've not been set free to run down the same paths that caused the disaster in your life before you were set free. You've been chained to Christ, which is why if you study Paul's writings, one of his greatest terms for himself, douleos Christos. He loved to be called a slave to Christ. Not in an oppressive way, but in a way that says, I do what the king says. I'll tell you something, there's a personal note there. How much do you think it meant to Paul to reflect on being chained to the Lord while he was chained in a prison cell? You see, most of the letters that he wrote, he wrote in prison. Chained worldly, but set free spiritually. So much so that he won many of the guards who guarded him to Christ. Don't you think the whole discussion of putting on the full armor of God came from the fact that that guy sat in the jail cell and looked at the guard every day and was wondering about how to illustrate his points in his letters? And so he says, you have been bought with a price. So when you stack that up, and you're beginning to struggle and feel that pull, I would like to call all of you to the ministry of preaching. The most important audience is your own heart. And I'd even say at the fear of chipping away at my authority in your life, the most important preacher is you to yourself, the word of God over you. You have to stop and do a little sermon and say, wait a minute, I want to look at her. I want to flirt with him. I want to click on this link. I want to go down this path. I want to spice things up. But wait a minute. That's going to do nothing but destroy everything in this path. The spirit of the living God lives me and the blood of Jesus bought me. I need to stop. I need to drop. I need to roll back into God's will and put that fire out. That's good. Somebody tweet that. I like that. 
Now, let me get real practical. I, to the best of my ability, have tried to explain the passage. I only have three verses here, and I'm not doing a good job of those three, managing my time, but we could spend mm, a lot more time. But. So let me take off my preaching hat, put on my pastor hat, and let me just explain to you how in God's wisdom to apply this word. One morality that matters. Two movements of our lives. Flee and glorify. Three motives right on the screen. I want to give you the four marks of a sexually pure man or woman. And if you're worried about trying to get it all down, it'll all be posted on social media by the time you finish lunch. What marks a man's life when he's living a life of sexual morality? What's that look like? In my observation, there are four marks. The first one is humility. If you're sitting in this room and you think you're above falling into sexual sin, you're on your way. It haunts me to hear a pastor say, I'll never do that to my congregation. I love to hear pastors say, I don't want to do that. But any man or woman in this room who says there is no room in your life for failing God in your sexuality is set yourself up for the greatest first step in the wrong direction. Having counseled so many who've done so much, almost inevitably, they will say in their own words, I never thought this could happen to me or my marriage or my life or I didn't think it was that big a deal. You have to humble yourselves. Let's say that this passage has gotten you there. I think it has in many of your lives. After humility comes boundaries. You have to put boundaries in your life. Now, boundaries, I believe, as a modern-day communicator, can be divided into two categories digital boundaries or relational boundaries. Paul didn't have to preach on digital boundaries. I do. You have the world and the cyber world. You have the universe and the metaverse. And we know that devices and technology have been used for great good. I use a multiplicity of devices and technologies in the preparation of my marriage. I'm standing by a television. I'm standing in front of a 60-foot wide LED screen that cost probably more than your house. To my right or to my left are two more screens and I'm being videoed by HD cameras and right now there are some who through sickness or travel or conflict are worshiping with us through the gift of technology. So I praise God for allowing us the ability to use technology. But when we think about digital boundaries, here are some that I believe should be in our lives. There's certainly some I require in the lives of our pastors here. Use software that blocks illicit material and reports it to an accountability partner. I personally use Covenant Eyes. There are several. Monitor your screen time and fight every week to get it down. Wherever it is, try to fight to get it down. This year in July, I fasted from social media for 30 days. I wondered how that would be. I did not miss it at all. 
I use it. It's a part of my ministry. I enjoy it. I love seeing pictures of your kids or somebody's ball game or accomplishments. I love it when we poke fun at ourselves. But there is an unhealthy, sick, toxic world that sucks so many young people into it. So monitor your screen time. Engage in zero private conversations with the opposite sex that extend beyond the communication of information or brief words of prayer and encouragement that you would gladly show your spouse. I am not a legalist. There are many women in my life and in my wife's life that help us just as we help them with their family. And so many times have I texted women in this church and said, what time do I need to pick Lily up from your house? Or what time can I pick up your son to come play with my son? I, I get that. But you ought to be able to hold up any digital communication you have with the opposite sex to your spouse or to someone in your life and say, you can read every single word of it. Just two weeks ago, a very prominent, very admirable, gifted communicator of God's word went on a leave of absence because he confessed to his church an inappropriate textual conversation with a woman who was not his wife. He claims it was not sexual, but it was too often and too familiar. I don't understand all that. I'm not making any inferences, but it just reminded me that you and I live in a day and age where what we would never do in person, we do with our thumbs, and we have a false sense of courage and security in that. Number four, Pray and seek the wisdom of God's Word and other Christians concerning your entertainment standards and stick with them. Just decide there's certain movies you're not going to watch, certain content you're not going to view. And don't hide behind the world's excuse which says, well, I'm an adult, I can handle this. Friend, it will handle you. Relational boundaries. Real life boundaries. Never be alone behind closed doors or in a vehicle with a member of the opposite sex who is not a family member. Some of you in the professional world may struggle with this one. This may be hard for you to execute in the profession that you live in. I know years ago, Mike Pence lived by this rule and he took some criticism. They called it the Mike Pence rule. The world hates this rule, by the way. But it's interesting to watch the world hate rules like this, but also want to rally behind the Me Too movement. I want to rally behind any woman that says, yeah, me too. I was hurt. I was molested. I was abused. I was taken advantage of. But when the church of God, I don't mean the assembly of God or the church of God. I mean the church of the Lord Jesus Christ says, all right, we need to go in the other direction. Don't criticize me for telling the men and the women in my church for being careful about this. Live your life in such a way that even if an accusation is made, there's not opportunity for it. No discussion of intimate struggles or sexual topics with a member of the opposite sex. Guys need to talk with guys about things they're dealing with. Ladies need to talk with ladies about things they're dealing with. But when that crosses the line of, appropriate, of inappropriateness, stop it and back up. Almost every adulterous affair we help people work through and many marriages in our church have been and are being saved did not begin with physical contact or the intent of adultery. They began with emotional attachment, digital or verbal communication that's inappropriate. Keep physical touch to such a level that no one could ever interpret it as inappropriate. I kind of think about it this way. When the ladies in the church are little, I love to hug them. And when they get old, I love to hug them. But in between little and old, side hug, fist bump, I love you, I care about you. And if there is a sorrowful moment in your life where you're weeping on the shoulder of your pastor, I make sure that it is done in the presence of other women where it could never be interpreted as anything inappropriate. 
You have to have those boundaries in your life. I will never have to stand before you and resign because I have committed adultery and cheated on my wife and I am disqualified from pastoring if I'm never alone with another woman. And so you put those boundaries in your life, but don't trust yourself. The third mark is accountability. Those boundaries are not just for you to hang your hat on and be prideful about. You need accountability. Accountability comes in four ways. The first accountability is digital. Use restrictive software and have an open device policy. If you're married to a person who cannot get into your phone, you need to deal with that. And they need to deal with that. Have an open device policy. Make sure that multiple people can access any of your devices whom you trust. There's a familiar level, a brother or sister in Christ. And for parents, it is our obligation to hold our children accountable. I love Life 360. I don't care if you take her out, son, but tell me where you're going to take her. Where are you going to bow? Where are you going to be? And I'm tracking. And if that gets turned off, I'm coming. The, the, the point is, is that I, 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 I will not resign myself to not doing everything in my power to help the children in my life. I am not immune, and I know my children are not immune. And I don't stand before you today claiming that my children will somehow handle this perfectly. I'm saying, as much as it depends on us, we cannot assume. Listen, a lot of good kids find themselves in questionable situations because there is not monitoring and there is not oversight. And then there's marital accountability. I don't believe that guys need to treat their wife as their only form of accountability because guys and girls struggle differently with sexual temptation. Typically, this is typical, it's a generalization. Don't hold me to it specifically. Typically, men struggle with visual temptation. They struggle with a very physical urge for sexual desire. Women tend to struggle with emotional attachment or being unattached. They struggle in a different way. And so sometimes those struggles, it's hard. You need to communicate openly, but I believe a woman should have women in her life she can talk to. I believe a man should have men in his life. But I also want a level of accountability in our marriages, and that leads, of course, to pastoral or spiritual accountability. I was talking to Ashton this morning. Our spiritual, our biblical counseling ministry is extremely busy since I opened this series up. Praise God for that. People are raising their hands saying, I'm not ready to tell the whole world. I don't have to tell the whole world. I want to talk to somebody about some struggles going on in my life or in my wife's life or in my child's life or in my husband's life. We need that spiritual authority in our life. And once you move past accountability, then there's intimacy. And this is where I'll close. Most people think sexual purity is fleeing from intimacy. That's actually not true. In the presence of intimacy, you have the best opportunity to have purity. In fact, sexual immorality is usually absent of intimacy. I'm not telling you to run from relationships. I'm telling you to run to them. Intimacy in which ways? One, pursue your relationship with the Lord. Every person I've ever talked to who was overwhelmed and overcome by some form of sexual sin will tell you weeks, months, if not years prior, they stopped having their quiet times. They stopped praying. They stopped camping in God's word or journaling in whatever way you use. They, they moved away from that. I see it over and over again. I see men and women deciding, I'm going to move out. I'm going to separate myself. I need to pull away. 
And when you do that, the enemy is setting you up. You pursue intimacy with the Lord. And then if you're married, you pursue intimacy with your spouse. This is not a marriage retreat, but you've been to them. You know that the marriages that are vital and healthy and strong are that way because people continue to pursue one another. They continue to court one another's heart. I mean, at this point in Lord and I's relationship, we just leave the kids. We just put a bowl of water out, lock the door. We're, we're going to go. It, 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 uh, most of the marriage maintenance for us happens in a booth at a local Mexican restaurant. But that's as far as we can get away without them finding us. And we just tell them, don't call the cops or the ambulance unless the blood's hitting the wall on the heartbeat. If you're not hemorrhaging, we can glue it up when I get home. I'm taking your mama out. I love her more than I love you. I loved her before I loved you. And she's going to be here when you're gone. You don't matter tonight. Mama matters. Just tell them. And by the way, men, tell your boys that so they know how to love their wife when God gives them one. And so when you pursue intimacy with the body of Christ and intimacy with your spouse and you pull in close, what you find is that you're not perfect. But when you do stumble, you stumble at the level of stumble and it doesn't happen in such a way that it wrecks homes or destroys relationships. It's about being aggressive in the right direction. Now it's time for you to respond. I received an email this week from a lady in our church who is going through a difficult time. She's seeing her marriage end because of sexual sin that is not her fault. It's not the first time it's hit her marriage, it's the second time and she forgave once before. And at this point, she's not seeing any desire on his part to even reconcile. But she's here and she's faithful. She's bringing her children. It's why every Sunday matters. You don't know her, but you probably opened the door for her at some point. You might have kept her kids. Man, don't ever forget what people deal with when they come through these doors. This is what her email said to me, and with her permission, I'm sharing it. I wanted to send you a quick note to say thank you. The sermons on sexual immorality within the church have been hard to hear, but I will set through them again if it means that it will save one person or even more so one marriage. How will you respond? Not all of you need to come to the altar this morning and confess some sin you've hidden from somebody. Maybe you want to come pray for your grandchildren's purity. Maybe you just want to come, ladies, and pray for your husband. Not because he's been unfaithful, but because you know he lives in a world where there are all kinds of people who are coming at him. Men, maybe you want to come and just pray for your daughter. She's three or four now, but one day she'll be a beautiful young lady. And the world has a sick and twisted version of what she's supposed to look like. And you want to pray as her spiritual father to protect the tenderness and the innocence of her heart. This is not just an altar for people who need to come confess something that's happening right now. This is an altar for the church to say, we don't want to be Corinth. We want to be Church at the Mill. But we want to be characterized by righteousness. Righteousness.